0: You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGM.com. Well, most in this room, I think, would generally agree that the pastoral epistles are, you know, obviously uh, God inspired, um, and they have great, you know, information about practical ministry, and they have a lot of great advice for ministers. I imagine that some of you, uh, because I've experienced it and thought it myself, may be tempted into believing there's little in the way of, of practical, applicable advice for the lay person from these epistles. And while I understand that notion, I, I want to assure you that this morning, uh, I hope that you will see that that is not the case. While most of us in this room have never been or are not currently and may never be ministers by vocation, each and every one of us in Christ is a minister of the gospel of Christ. We're ambassadors of God's kingdom and we are heralds of his good news. So that means that each and every one of us has the responsibility of the kingdom and it is my sincere belief that we will be uh, what is proclaimed in this series and what has been proclaimed in this series is as relevant to each and every one of us here this morning as it was to Timothy. So a a quick refresher on where we were. Last week, Puzo masterfully dissected the first few verses of this letter, and we saw that even in the intros of Paul's epistles, that there is wonderfully rich doctrine on which to nourish ourselves. In those few verses, we learned that our identity in Christ is defined by grace, mercy, and peace, and that as Christians, sometimes that means rolling up our sleeves and doing the hard work, the stuff we don't want to do, of defending the gospel against false teaching. And we were left with the question of what it would mean if the Big C Church would look like if if we were known for grace, mercy, and peace, both as a church and as individuals in Christ. So this morning we arrive in verse 3 through 20. Paul is, is going to finish up this first section of his letter to Timothy by reminding him of his commission. I say, I like to imagine this this whole experience, this whole journey that Timothy has been placed on um, as, as something akin to the movie 1917. So if you've ever seen that, um, I, I won't spoil it for you. But Timothy kind of reminds me of the young soldier who was tasked with bringing a, a very important message to the high command. And in doing so, he has to go through surviving war zones and crossing enemy territory, nearly drowning, uh, just to get this one piece of information to the right hands. And in doing so, saves countless men's lives. So like that young man, Timothy has been tasked to deliver life-saving news to a group of people. And while Timothy is certainly not overly concerned about their, their mortal danger... He is very concerned, as is Paul, with the very real spiritual danger that they face. So as we approach our text this morning, we'll remind ourselves that this is a letter written by Paul to his protege, Timothy. A letter written sometime after the events of Acts 20, where Paul leaves Ephesus and embarks on a journey to Jerusalem, where he will be arrested and shipped to Rome and eventually executed for the gospel. But he has left Timothy there to combat false teaching, which is tearing this church apart. We'll get into some of the more detail about what that teaching is, but suffice it to say for now that this is mostly contained of of twisting and, and manipulating the gospel that Paul had taught. In essence, Paul is calling Timothy to go and do a little demo work and repair a damaged foundation in the Ephesian church. So in this section, Paul gives Timothy three instructions for how he should build this church back up and what the foundation of it should be. So as we come to the text this morning, let us, like Timothy, be reminded of how to build the church up, a foundation well, as well as our own foundations. Pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning and we just ask for your spirit to move that you would be on our hearts and in our minds, giving us understanding but also conviction, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would um, help me to get out of the way of your word this morning and that um, what we proclaim here would be honoring and glorifying to you alone. Thank you, Lord, for Timothy and for Paul and the the rich dialogue that we get to have and, um, Lord, the example that they've set. I pray that we would learn from that this morning. In your name we pray. So the first thing, the first instruction that that Timothy uh, is given from Paul is that we should remember what the gospel isn't. The first thing we need to do in any situation, especially as ministers of the gospel, is that we need to remember what the gospel of Christ actually is and what it isn't. And that's perhaps one of the most difficult tasks in all of Christian leadership is is trying to navigate this barrage that, that both Society and individuals will, um, will hold up as, as primary, these things that they hold up as primary that really aren't. Our jobs as minister of the gospel, the job that Timothy was given as well, is to help maintain a focus on what the real gospel is. But even the most spiritual and sound teachers can lose sight of it. And in the midst of the chaos in Ephesus, Paul encourages Timothy to remember what the gospel is by defining terms. So, by trade, I am an insurance adjuster, um, so naturally I'm everyone's best friend. A large part of my job is to look at and study and interpret really annoying and complex insurance contracts. One of the most important sections in any insurance contract is the definitions page. And in that definitions page, they will define for everybody in the contract who the insured is, where the insured location is, and most importantly, what meets the definition of property damage. So I'm a property adjuster. I used to be an auto adjuster. Thank the Lord I'm not there anymore. But, but on the property side, we have to understand what, what even is considered property damage. So on any given day, I'll receive a dozen or so claims, all of which sounds like things on the surface that would be covered by insurance. My job is to go in, look at all these fine prints, and, and uh, look at the terms, especially the definition of property damage, and oftentimes what I find is that it doesn't match. And so I have the unfortunate task of denying those claims. If anyone has had experiences with insurance companies, you know how, fun, how much fun that is to have happen. So what I'm not doing this morning is equating the gospel to an insurance contract. The gospel does not have fine print or loopholes, but what I am advocating is that the, there is an importance in defining terms. The gospel, we hear that phrase a lot, Isn't and shouldn't be a catch all term for anything that is anything and everything that is vaguely Christian. The gospel is a very specific thing. So, in this section, Paul is going to begin to define terms by letting us know what the gospel isn't and by addressing specifically the errors, the heresy that was being taught in the Ephesian church. So, we start in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So this section is a reference to Acts 19 and 20. Paul in the Ephesian church endured a riot started by metal workers and craftsmen who were making shrines to the, uh, to the local god Artemis. Once these riots were quieted, Paul in Acts 20 leaves Ephesus for Jerusalem, as we spoke about, but he leaves parting instructions for the Ephesian elders, of which Timothy would have been included. And Paul leaves them with this in Acts 20:28 20, through 30 Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So it would seem that Paul's prophecy has come true. There are now wolves among the flock ready to devour them. And these false teachers were potentially already known troublemakers for Paul as he left. But undoubtedly more have sprung up because they saw Timothy as a potentially more favorable adversary. So Paul reminds Timothy of a simple command, his charge. Charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. So what kinds of things were being taught? Why is this such an issue that Paul needs to address it, not only in Acts 20, but again here in this letter to Timothy? In verse 4 we get a hint. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. We don't know for sure, but... But it is supposed that these different doctrines were something akin to, to Jewish mysticism or Gnosticism. Myths and endless genealogies were likely referring to Genesis in this tradition or this uh, new task of, of tracing lineages back to the patriarchs to try and promote oneself or try and identify oneself as being more pure than others. In his uh, commentary on this, this passage, Stott, John Stott posits two well-known texts That Paul may have been referring to here, which were the book of Jubilees and the biblical antiquities of Philo, which, as he says, um, were retellings of the Old Testament stories or tenditious rewrites of the Old Testament, which stressed the indestructibility of Israel and the law. So. These rewrites, as they were, these teachers were allegorizing the Old Testament to fit their narrative. They were using the Old Testament, especially the law, as a fertile soil to sprout all sorts of false teachings. Now it's important to note here that it's not believed that these were Judaizers like the ones that Paul will face in Galatia. These were more likely Jewish mystics allegorizing the Old Testament, and namely, twisting the words of Jesus even, Um, and trying to make some weird accusations about his teachings on sex and marriage and dietary laws. So those are some of the specifics. But in doing this, the false teachers, they sowed seeds of doubt within the minds of of the the average lay person in the church. We don't get a whole lot of detail on this, but, but Paul points to the end product. These teachings promoted speculation rather than stewardship. These speculations distracted the people and deceived the church at Ephesus from their duty to steward the faith. The NIV literally translates it, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So we have these false teachers and their controversial speculations, and now Paul is making a distinction between them and their controversial speculations and our work which is founded in faith in Jesus Christ, rather than endless myths and genealogies. Paul is telling Timothy that these false teachers, their teachings are not grounded in genuine faith. And they run contrary to what he has laid down for us in our godly stewardship. He expounds in verse 5-7, through The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith certain persons By swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make these confident assertions. Paul, again, is contrasting the two groups, these false teachers and the faithful. It's an us versus them, our charge versus certain persons. These false teachers desired to be teachers of the law. He uses that phrase, and I believe intentionally, with all of its semi-negative connotation in mind. These men were pharisaical at heart. They wanted to show their righteousness through their knowledge and their practice of the law. They wanted to be respected religious teachers. And while we lose some of this in our translation and, and time, I think Paul is kind of going at him a little bit here. He condemns them by saying they're without understanding that literally what they're saying, the things about which they make confident assertions. They're without understanding. They, they literally don't even know what they're talking about, which I believe for Paul is kind of like a, a first century burn. You know. We've all known people like this, right? So every one of us in this life has surely had a conversation with somebody about a, about a topic that we were passionate about. And in the course of that conversation, rather quickly it becomes apparent that the other person really has no idea what they're saying. So for me, this, this looks like really any time I have a conversation with like a casual soccer fan about or who has uh, ideas or thoughts about why the U.S. isn't better at soccer. Just roll my eyes, keep going. We've all been there. So you have Paul, the apostle, this man who was highly respected within Judaism, who zealously persecuted Christians prior to his conversion, was blinded by the Lord on the way to Damascus to kill more Christians, heard the Lord speak to him audibly, and was given the title of apostle, being challenged by some bros in Ephesus who have some pretty neat ideas about the Old Testament. It's a little bit ridiculous. So Paul helps refresh Timothy and remind him of what the purpose of the law really was. So they've been twisting the Old Testament to fit their purposes, making the law say things that it didn't. So so Paul reminds Timothy of what the law was meant to do from the first place. So in verses 8 through 11, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God in which I have been entrusted. Again, we have this us versus them mentality. We know that the law is good. Paul says, he's establishing again, the law is good, even post-resurrection, a topic that will be broached throughout the New Testament. The law is good. Even though Christ has come to usher in a new and better covenant, the law is still good if it's understood or used. Lawfully. So, what does he mean here? If we're going to understand what the law's purpose was, we need to understand what it was meant to do. So if there's a correct use and an incorrect use, then we need to understand what those were. And Paul expounds upon the correct use. He says, understanding this, the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. The first step to determining proper use is to understand who the law was for. So again, we need to define terms. The law is for the lawbreaker, not the just. As Paul states, the law is for us. We are the unholy and profane, the ungodly, the sinners. God is not the lawless one. God does not need the law. We do. It is similar to when Jesus tells the Pharisees that the Sabbath was not made for God, but for man. The law was meant to reveal our fallenness, to reveal our need for God. So if we know with Timothy that the law is good, if it's used lawfully and the law is for the lawless one, you and me, then the next question is, what was the law meant to do? So Paul reminds Timothy, and I'll I'll quote here from uh, the Institutes, Calvin gives three purposes for the law. The first is to convict us of sin. Calvin puts it, it renders us inexcusable and drives us to despair, so that naked and empty-handed we flee to God's mercy, repose tiredly in it, and hide within it, and seize upon it alone for righteousness and merit. Secondly, the law was meant to restrain evil. The law acts as a sort of external deterrent, keeping man from doing what his flesh would like to do. And you can think of this as the civil law or societal norms, keeping men from doing the things that the the most dark things that they would like to do. Lastly, it was to educate the believers in the will of God, and most importantly. So for the believer, the law, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is the primary way that we learn and are obedient to God's will. As Paul will remind Timothy some years later, the Word of God is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So we can agree that the law is good. It keeps us, it convicts us, it restrains us, it educates us. The law does so much for us. But Paul is reiterating that the the, the law is limited and that it can't save us. The law was always powerless to do so, it cannot transform the sinful heart. The law works in concert with the gospel of Jesus, but it itself is not the gospel and that it lacks the ability to transform and redeem sinful people. So Paul reminds Timothy and us this morning that the law is not sufficient. We need a gospel of glory. We need Paul's gospel, not not myths and endless genealogies. We need the gospel, not the law. And with that, Paul turns to his favorite pastime, doxology or worship. So the second thing we need the second instruction that's given here to build a firm foundation first is to recognize what the gospel isn't, define our terms. But now Paul turns to what the gospel is. And he instructs Timothy and us that we should marvel at what the gospel is. Paul has spent every drop of eleven verses reminding Timothy and us that of what the gospel isn't and the limitations of the law, but now he's going to get to the heart of the passage. And rather than some long theological treatise, which he'll use elsewhere, Paul uses his own conversion as a case study. Starting in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul opens and closes this section with praise. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, and to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. As Paul reflects in his own mind on the ridiculously crazy conversion he underwent, he knows that the, the only way that he made it through was the strength that God supplied him. And he's reminding Timothy and us what the source of our own strength should be. So as he moves into his own story, one we're likely familiar with, but but if you're not, Paul, then Saul, was a zealous Jew persecuting Christians for their blasphemy and oversaw the, the murder of many of them. Then on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians, he was blinded by the Lord, was spoken to audibly, and then came to faith in Christ and was appointed an apostle to the Gentiles. So why is Paul telling us this? Timothy would have been aware of this. In telling of his own personal conversion, he is, def- he is highlighting for Timothy and for us the defining characteristics of the Gospel. This Gospel that he has preached. The one he is advocating Timothy to defend. Firstly, that is that God's grace for the elect is unconditional. Nothing in Paul or in us has made us worthy of God's grace we like paul were blasphemers persecutors and insolent opponents of god and yet he saved us secondly god's grace is life and purpose giving the grace that god, the grace of god has produced in paul life and faith and love that did not exist prior and he gave him a new purpose to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And lastly, the grace of God is patient. God did not stop Paul from killing Stephen or the other believers. Through the blasphemy and ignorance, God was patient, knowing that at the exact right moment, he would extend his irresistible grace to Paul and change the world. So then, in verse 15, we come to the climax of the entire passage. Paul gives us, in the simplest form, he defines for us what the gospel is. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Two observations quickly. This saying is trustworthy. So, as opposed to the speculations and controversies of Timothy's opponents, this is to be trusted. And secondly, fully accepted, not partially so. There's no twisting or splicing this gospel to fit whatever narrative that we desire. Verse 15 is is perhaps one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, precisely because of its simplicity. There is no mistaking here what Paul is saying. we jump into this verse even more. In my undergraduate, we had a class called Personal Formation, which was basically just spiritual disciplines and devotional methods. Most of it was a little strange, but but one of the methods that stuck with me through this class was this old monastic devotional method called Lectio Divina. And Lectio Divina was, uh, there was a lot to it, but, but one of the things that stuck out to me most about it was that the point of it was to take small passages of Scripture and repeat them over and over and over and over again. Ringing out every ounce of truth that you could find within just the smallest passages at a time. The aim was to reflect and meditate on Scripture deeply. So, so this morning I'll show you what it, it looks like because this verse was used as an example for us in this class. So we'll trim this verse down just a little bit. but What you're doing is you're repeating this verse over and over again. But each time you're putting emphasis on a different word, the next word in the sentence. So we have Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 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 Save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In its simplest form, that is the gospel. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the gospel that Paul. His preaching that is the goal that he was uh, the gospel that he was defending the gospel that he sent, spent his entire life proclaiming the gospel that he would die repeating, and it is that gospel that we are charged to both remember this morning and to marvel at such a simple verse, but as you repeat it over and over again, you see how rich it is. It is Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, not Buddha. Not Muhammad, not Krishna, not your Republican or Democratic Senators. It was Jesus. Incarnate. Not just that, but He came on a mission. He came to save sinners. He didn't come to destroy us, though we would deserve it. He didn't come to enslave us, though we would deserve it. He came to save us. Most importantly, He came to save Sinners. He didn't come to rescue the rich or the proper, those who have it all figured out, the powerful. No. He came for the broken, the destitute, the poor, the powerless. To put it another way, he came for us. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as I reflect on my own story, I am reminded of how desperately I need that. I am a broken and flawed and proud and arrogant and cruel and deceitful and utterly selfish man. And yet, by God's immeasurable grace, I can stand before you today eternally justified and redeemed in the eyes of my Creator. Amen. If verse 15 is the climax of the entire passage, then Paul has reached this mountaintop with Timothy and he reminds him that in the face of complex and controversial speculations and myths and genealogies, that the Gospel is really pretty simple. And it is the simplicity of it that He beckons us to marvel at. God did not come with complicated uh, formulas and systems. He came as a man in the flesh to die for us in the great exchange, taking our sin and giving us His righteousness. So as Paul begins his descent down the other side in the last half, verse 15 through 17, he says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, we see God's unconditional election, his purpose-giving grace, and his patience in the life and conversion of Paul. All of this leads Paul to worship. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This was likely some well-known liturgy of their day, but it was also trustworthy and sound. And it is with this liturgy that Paul moves us to his final instruction to Timothy and to us. Now that we know what the gospel isn't, now that we know what the gospel is, if we're going to build a firm foundation for the church, Timothy is going to build a firm foundation for the, the church in Ephesus. Now that we've defined the terms, we must fight for the gospel. Verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. One of my favorite movies growing up, as I've made very clear in my previous sermons I'm a history nerd, my fa- one of my favorite movies was Mel Gibson's The Patriot. And in that movie, there's a scene where Gibson's character is going around recruiting men for his militia, and he arrives in this one specific town, one that he knows well. He busts into a church service in the middle of a Sunday morning and it makes this impassioned plea on the backs of liberty and freedom. And the minister just pipes up and says, Son, this is a house of God. He kicks him out. But after that, we pan to the outside, outside the town, where everybody's gathered, and all the the wives and daughters are seeing off their sons and husbands and brothers. And out of the crowd, you see walk past the minister. One of the townspeople pipes up and inquisitively asks, "Just Reverend?" The reverend takes off his silly little wig and puts on a cool hat, holding a musket. He says a shepherd must tend his flock and at times fend off the wolves. That line has always stuck with me. And while I don't necessarily endorse the overlap of patriotism and church, the sentiment hits home. For Timothy, it was time to fend off the wolves. And Paul uses this Strange phrase. He says, Wage the good warfare. And as we read that, the placement of the article is very important. Because Paul is not advocating waging warfare for the sake of it, nor is he making a comment on the quality of the war being waged. Instead, Paul is advocating specific warfare. The good warfare. This is the same language that Paul used. In his final letter to Timothy, just before he faces his execution in chapter 4, verse 7 of 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. So I want to make two quick observations here. First, Paul is not telling Timothy or us that we should should be uh, waging war or a fight over everything. There is a good fight to be fought. A good war to be waged. But in this context, that is a fight for the preservation of the gospel. So this text is not permission for us to wage war over secondary and tertiary issues with people. Secondly, this war is not being waged against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. As we will see, this is a necessary distinction as Paul is going to identify by name two of the individuals. Paul is not calling Timothy to wage war against flesh and blood, but as he will address in his letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 6, 12, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and against the powers of darkness in this world and against the spiritual forces, forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So with those reminders in place, we can move forward. Timothy is a young inexperienced, and somewhat impressionable minister. Surely, what these false teachers were saying, they're making some measure of plausible argument. One does not have to make a large leap to assume that Timothy is under considerable pressure. Why else would Paul feel the need to write him multiple times? The question is, does he give in to that pressure and follow the seductive temptation of their heresy, or does he hold fast and fight the good fight of faith. Now we don't know precisely what Paul means by the prophecies that were made about him, but Stott in his commentary assumes that it's referring to Paul's call of Timothy to join his mission's team, the subsequent journeys that they went on, and then finally his ordination into the ministry in Ephesus. Whatever they are, Paul is calling on Timothy now to remember them and to use them as fuel for the fight ahead. So just as Paul warned Timothy that the wolves would surface in his absence, now Paul warns him that the wolves are at his doorstep. And we learn of at least two of these teachers by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander. The latter we know very little about. Um, the only other mention of an Alexander in Ephesus is in Acts 19 as a metal worker who's making idols um, as a part of the riot, but it's not likely that he would have been associated with the church. But Hymenaeus... We know a little bit about. We learn from 2 Timothy 2.18 that Hymenaeus was a routine offender in the heretical uh, teachings department and he was the one that was causing the peril in the church claiming that the resurrection had already happened. So why does Paul mention these two men? Why does he find it necessary to do so? Paul is giving Timothy and us a crash course in church discipline. These two men have rejected the gospel and in doing so they have shipwrecked their faith. And that of, of others in the church. The word Paul uses here is apatheo, which means a violent and a deliberate rejection. These men were not like Paul pre conversion, they were not acting out of ignorance. This was willful. They have rejected Jesus for these myths and genealogies. And so Paul is going to make an example of them. But why? I think it's for uh, not too dissimilar a reason as to why Paul addresses the issue with Peter in Galatians. To make an example of them so that those who are weaker in their faith would not fall prey to these men. But Paul uses this confusing phrase. He says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And I'll be honest with you, when I read that, I was like, Ugh, well, that's going to be an awkward one to have to discuss. So what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? Is that something that, that all ministers have the, the power to do? Is that just Paul? Because, I mean, honestly, that sounds pretty intense. I don't know if I'm ready for that kind of power. But we see that Paul uses this same kind of language in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, in the case of the incestuous member of the church, Paul commands the church to deliver them over to Satan. In his commentary on this section, Philip Towner notes that the nature of the disciplinary procedure of church discipline is not very clear in this text, but if we can extrapolate from other texts throughout the New Testament, like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, etc., it would seem that this handing over to Satan was the last stage involved in an unrepentant sinner being turned out of the church, being treated like an unbeliever, and there was probably some sort of envisionment of this removal of the sphere of protection that God had in sending them into a world where Satan still held some sway. Now it's important to note here that this seems to be the norm given the other passages as well and that the, ex- the most extreme punishment of in God inflicting immediate death as he did in uh, Acts 5 is, is not in view here. So two things to note. Handed over to Satan means the last stage of church discipline. This is excommunication. They're being kicked out of the church and handed over to a realm in which Satan can have his way. The second is that the goal is repentance. Towner again says, as elsewhere in 1 Corinthians five five, the goal of such discipline is the reclamation of the erring person. They're being handed over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. As if in this this excommunication, what they will endure will remind them the error of their ways and will drive them towards repentance. The desire is that these men will repent and come back into the fold. Waging good warfare is not so that we can inflict as many casualties as possible. It is for the preservation of the gospel, for the reclamation of erring souls. The hope is that they will reject their rejection and once again submit to the gospel of grace. And it would seem that this is a strange way for for Paul to transition from the heights of praise and worship about the gospel in verses 12 through 17. But Paul recognized that Timothy is dealing with real flesh and blood issues here. And so he gives him this advice. In conclusion this morning, Paul chooses to end this section on a serious note. Reminding Timothy that sometimes ministers have to fend off the wolves. The reality though is that these threats were not external. Paul didn't instruct Timothy to to organize boycotts of the metalworkers' guilds in response to their persecution. No, these, these threats came from within. These were men that Paul and Timothy knew, faces and stories they were familiar with. As ministers of the gospel, whether you are vocationally so or not. the greatest threats are not going to be from the culture outside of these walls. We know that persecution's coming. Jesus assured it. Rather, instead, Satan will use and seduce those who we would call brothers and sisters to reject the gospel, to embrace lesser things, to give over to sinful desires and slowly numb their consciences to the point where their rejection of the gospel becomes violent and deliberate. Our enemy will hit us where it hurts the most, the family of God. And in my short time, I have experienced this firsthand some of you know, I went to a Bible college for my undergrad. That's where I met my wife. And on our dorm floor, we had a bunch of guys who all of us were training for ministry. That's why we were there. And you would think, maybe, that everybody that goes to Bible college are these golden boys in their youth groups, boys and girls in their youth groups, and, and they're there. They're the most holy. They're the most you know, sought after, and they're going to change the world for Jesus, and some do you'll find and as you've known from my own story Satan likes to pick on those who would seem the strongest so I had a friend we'll call him Ben Ben was as zealous a minister as I have ever seen and he was sharp as a tack he didn't always look it but he went to Ozark to study what was called biblical justice His, his whole purpose for being there was so that he could go and help Girls and boys who were in sex trafficking pulled them out to to help counsel them to be the hands and feet in Jesus in very dark situations. And he was very passionate about it. And I don't know what all happened with Ben, but I know that over time, over the few years that we spent together, his passion, his zeal for this work started to fade slowly. He started hanging out with people who are not Christians though I'm not saying that's a terrible thing rather than influencing them for the gospel he was being influenced by them I remember specifically one day having a conversation in the car where he said he wanted to go to Colorado after the laws had just changed so that he could just try smoking pot just to see what it was like I'm not your dare officer or anything like that but I just couldn't fathom it. Why would you need something like that? Why would you need that experience? If you've tasted and seen the glory of God, what could this ever give you? And I'm not I'm not standing up here as one that's so much more pious than everyone else. I've had my own struggles, but, but that was just the beginning of that. Pretty soon he was dating a girl who was... Um, Not a Christian, and they were having premarital sex, and and they were engaging in all sorts of other probably illegal activities. And pretty soon he dropped out of Ozark completely, and he was not a Christian. It has been said that nobody drifts towards orthodoxy. And while it's true that we rarely see heresy come all at once, quickly, and drastically. Most of the time, we drift slowly and imperceptibly toward it. This is why Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4.16 to watch your life and doctrine closely. And in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. As Pastor Doug told us a few weeks ago, doctrine and life are inseparable. And as Puzo reminded us last week, our identity in Christ is founded in the economy of God's grace, mercy, and peace. So we must watch our lives and our doctrine closely. We must build our lives on a foundation that will hold. I arrived at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri just a few months after the tornado that destroyed a large chunk of the town. And this idea of shifting foundations uh, is poignant because In the aftermath of the tornado, you could see the utter destruction. Nowhere more so than in the hospital. Sure, all the windows and stuff had been blown out and there's stuff hanging everywhere, but but the force of the tornado was so strong that it moved the, the hospital, this massive building, off its foundations by like six inches. And it may not sound like much. Six inches may not sound like much. We're talking this much, but... But if you know anything about construction, a foundation, a building being moved off its foundation by six inches is ridiculous. It's dangerous. The whole building would have to be imploded, rebuilt. It doesn't take much for us to lose our foundation in Christ. If we drift even just a couple of inches we can find ourselves in heretical territory. So we must, we must watch our lives and our doctrine closely. And we must build our lives on a foundation that will hold eternally. And we do this by understanding what the gospel isn't. Don't let your source of salvation be confused by your theological hobby horses, or your passion projects, or your noble causes. No matter how good they may be, they can't save you, nor can they save the people whom you serve. We do this by, by marveling at what the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and, in the most profound act of love and mercy, came in the flesh and died for us so that we might not have to suffer the sin, uh, the, the consequences of the sin and wrath that we deserved, and instead are given His righteousness. We do this by knowing when it is time to fight the good fight and protect our flock from ravenous wolves. This morning, I'm not asking you to be suspicious of your brothers and sisters. I'm not asking you to point at the person you disagree with on some random issue and call them a heretic. I'm asking us as a church together at Redeemer, To watch our lives and our doctrine closely. To build our lives and our church on a foundation that will hold for eternity. That we would hold each other accountable to not drifting to the left or to the right even a little bit on the things that matter. And the only way that we can do this is by understanding what the gospel isn't. But most importantly on what the gospel is.